Welcome to episode three of The Guarding Guys. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. That just sounds too early. This is like episode 29 or something if we go back last year. It seems like you're skipping all last year. Welcome to episode three of the 2023 season of Guarding Guys. There you We're go. now a season. Much better. It's season, a season three, yes. Right. If you missed the first two seasons... Yeah. You can always go back somewhere and find those things. You can online. binge them, sort of yeah. like a series on Netflix. Yeah, like Stranger Things. Season two. Welcome yes, back. Yes. Um, but before Tom interrupted me, I am Darren Parmenter <laughs> with CSU Extension in La Plata County. And I'm Tom Bartels from GrowFoodWell.com. We are the Garden Guys. We'll right. give you some pointers on gardens and how to garden, and we'll talk about food. And I think last week we talked about early season, early season, and kind of you know just waiting and chilling. Okay, now we're in, not in go season yet, but we're gonna maybe talk about what uh, what else is on that early season docket. I guess I'd like to reach out to the people that have seedlings under lights right now because indoors, indoors, yeah. Yeah, and so like, let's talk about the lights first. So we had this discussion last year where yeah. I underestimated um, how many lumens I needed. Right. So I had to scramble and buy some more lights because my stuff was getting a little leggy. Um, so you can say it's a shop light. It can be super fancy light, purple, blue, mm-hmm. full spectrum, however you want to do it. Yeah, you can get expensive bulbs and grow vegetables, or you can do it with cheap LED shop lights. And as long as they're high enough lumens, they don't have to be perfect. Yes, there are those purists that say, no, you got to get the the blue growth bulb and this and that. It's like, sure, maybe for certain uh, strains or something. (laughs) But if you're just growing vegetables and you want to try some seedlings, some standard LED shop lights work fine. Now, a couple of caveats on that is you want to get at least 7,000 lumens minimum, which is very easy. Most of them are beyond that now. Um, they're relatively cheap. They're like between 35 and 50 bucks. I want to say for a three foot, uh, shop light with four bulbs in it, you know, don't use much electricity. No, they're very, very meager, um, appetite for energy and they put out plenty of light. They're close to 5,000 Kelvin or 4,000 something Kelvin, which is close to outdoor sunlight. Um, which you want to try to reference as much as possible. Okay. But so if you get something in the four to 5,000 Kelvin, and that's the temperature of the light, and above 7,000 lumens, which is the amount of light coming from that bulb, those two thresholds, once you meet those, they're going to be fine. So do these packages have lumens on the side of them? Yeah, each one of these will tell you exactly what it is. And this particular set that I've got here working is 7,000 lumens, and I think it's about 4,500 uh, is the temperature Kelvin and uh, the color of the, the light. So it's close to over 5,000, which is getting closer to the sunlight, which is a much bluer light than what we're used to indoors, indoors. in the in- incandescent yellow light. So uh, that being said, the second thing you got to look for as far as your own behavior is make sure when you start seedlings, you have these lights as close to the seedlings as possible without touching. Maybe right. two, three inches max above that seedling tray and you move it up as they grow. So a lot of people will put it three feet above the plants and the plants will, it gets leggy, right? It starts right. Reach, reaching for light because it's not getting enough intensity. So that 7,000 lumens means it's radiating that much light pretty close proximity to the bulb itself, not six feet away. So. Right. Keep it really close to that plant as it grows and lift it incrementally as that plant gets taller. And most seeds don't actually even need light to germinate. 
That's right? correct. So it's actually the probably the critical point early on is to have a warm soil. Uh-huh. Um, so for those of you who grow on shelves or shelving, you know, having a uh, a heat map underneath those whatever trays you use um, kind of keeps that temperature at a warm, consistent uh, level. You mm-hmm. know, it was like usually like about 75 degrees is kind of like that optimal soil temperature. So there's actually, and for some flowers need light to germinate. So you just put the seed on top of the soil, but I don't know if any vegetables that actually need light for germination. But I think everything goes is covered with at least an eighth of an inch eighth of soil. Eighth of an inch for the really tiny, like yeah. so. If you're doing stuff like that indoors, it may germinate a little bit quicker, and then you pop the lights on if you had to. You don't mm-hmm. actually have to pop the lights on initially and create that grow room, you know, atmosphere until you start to get, you know, those cotyledons starting to emerge from the soil. Right. And one other quick note on the soil blocks, um, even if you're using cells, like the plastic tray cells for planting seedlings, um, we want to remind people to try to shift over to coir away from peat moss. And what is coir? Coir is just uh, coconut husks that have been shredded. Uh, It's a very good absorptive, benign material that you can grow just about anything in. And it basically uh, takes the place of what we have been using peat for peat moss for many years Uh, it's just that there's too many of us trying to mine and use peat moss from limited uh, places where it grows and it it just um, doesn't need to be that way and coir tends to be just as good as a planting medium but you're taking something out of the waste stream which is used coconut husks that are then shredded and brought to market and used for stuff like this yeah it's nice i mean peat is renewable but it's in the thousands of years time frame right. of being renewable, right? And it's so, been getting hammered over the past decades uh, yeah. where they go in with helicopters and grab big nets full of peat moss in Canada and other places. And it just, it's just not sustainable. So. Right. So we have the overall ecosystem that's yeah. probably doing more damage than good. So, and I think nurseries and folks who are starting, you know, seeds at a mass level are also looking to look at maybe more coir or mm-hmm. alternative soilless bases. Uh, than peat just because of that. Choir is actually a more balanced pH, which is another reason to use it. And you can find, I'm assuming, choir at local nurseries, home oh, yeah. improvement centers. Yeah. Um, it's readily available at most box stores now in the gardening department, and most nurseries have it. And really, it expands like 10 times the volume of the, of the dry block once you do hydrate it. So I just put it in a wheelbarrow, flood the wheelbarrow, come back in two hours, and the whole thing's full of this amazing material it's just so if i can't find the pre-hydrated i can buy stuff that's not hydrated and then where do i find the water at i just home (laughs) Uh, you can buy buckets full of water okay all right yeah they're capped and sealed and and you can get five gallons of water at lowe's okay good yeah yeah yeah, as a spout so i can control flow yeah or you could just skip the whole thing and buy the vegetables ready made at the supermarket Uh, there you go skip the whole growing process perfect easy easy but we're out of a job then yeah is this a job? <laughs> Am I getting paid? No. Hold on. This is a hobby. Okay, there this we is... go. Yes. So, yeah. So, um, I want to kind of come back to this soil block. Yes. You know, we've had this discussion of, of I don't do soil blocks. I'm not opposed to soil blocking. I'm just a little bit ignorant with it. So, I've always done cells. It's kind of like how we've always grown is you put a soilless mixture into a plastic cell. And right. then... Maybe you bump it up one time into a bigger plastic container. Labor. And that goes into um, (laughs) 
You have to sit there and like scoff and interrupt me with words like labor. <laughs> I totally do, man. No, you don't. Why do you have to plan it twice? That's just a waste of time. It's your maybe it's a waste of your time. Maybe maybe you get my therapeutic life? benefit yes. from transplanting to the next cell yeah. size bigger. Yeah, and I can talk to my plants yeah. at that point, and I can let them know that all is okay. Just a bigger bed. <laughs> bigger bed. So I want the soil blocking. Yeah. Um, for all of our listeners out there, all three of them at this point. I want to kind of maybe get a recipe. Is there a recipe? I mean, is um, it a secret? No, there's no secrets. You basically use whatever soil medium you're using for if you're planting in cells. It's very similar. It's a an absorptive medium. Like we said, traditionally it's peat moss or something else, in this case, coir. And then I use worm castings and compost, some perlite to break it up, just like you would in a seedling mix. So perlite's the white stuff, just yeah. so you guys, it's like expanded volcanic rock. Yeah. And it doesn't really hold water, but it creates space. Space, yeah. Yep. It allows rooting uh, capacity for small, okay. young plants. And I add a touch of green sand and phosphate rock, um, maybe a touch of uh, alfalfa meal, but very little. Okay. And that is enough to get that plant well beyond cotyledon leaves and get it to the point where it's going to transplant without shock. And the way soil blocks handle that, and the reason I love them so much is you plant that seedling. It has plenty of nutrient load in that block. It's a two inch by two inch block to get all the way to transplant height without doing what you're preferring, which is transplant it again into another plastic pot. And then a third time into in the garden yeah i want to do i only do want to do that once so because i'm lazy so the soil block allows me to get it to full height like four or five inches sometimes six inches on a tomato and it's still plenty healthy it's not leggy it's getting plenty of nutrition it's calm as can be you transplant it into the garden and what happens on soil blocks is there's space between each block so you soak the tray once every three days the Blocks absorb all that water, hold it because they're really dense blocks. And then the roots of this plant will go out and in a cell, they circle around yep. as the plant ages, which is why you need to transplant yep. them because those they'll become root bound and that's bad for the plant. It'll see itself uh, as an adolescent all of a sudden and many times they'll go to fruit right away and that plant right. is accelerating its maturity, which is bad. So in the sense of what a soil block does is those roots go to the edges of the block on all sides and they see air well roots don't like to grow in the air for the most vegetables anyway and so they hit that and they do what's called air pruning where they stop the growth on the tip they stay alive all the way to the side of the block and they stop and then they put out another root and they cover all the sides of the block until the edge and so it's air pruned so it's waiting now and when you put that in the soil it grows from those tips out in all directions, right from the edge of the soil block. So you get immediate stabilization. You avoid most of the uh, transplant shock that seedlings typically have when you put them out in a new environment. And they're already well-versed in nutrient cycling using microbes uh, that matches the soil food web, if you're using that in your organic garden, so that it already knows what to do. So with your, let's say I have a six-inch tomato plant yeah. above ground. Yeah. Is there enough rooting media in that block, that two by two inch block, yeah. to support that plant and provide it everything it needs at a six inch level? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you don't have to keep moving up into the quart size container. Yeah. But you can. I think what'll happen there is if you keep moving it up in moving it again into a larger pot, et cetera, 
like what you're talking about, into maybe a six inch pot, which would be probably big enough to get it out of the garden. Yeah, Yeah, but then it's probably a foot tall. Yeah. Uh, That plant is going to be bigger when it goes in. Not always better. Not always better. And I've done the same with a purchased seedling that was maybe a foot tall, and I put it right next to these soil blocks, and the soil blocks accelerate right past it. Because once they start their growth, they're so rapid. One differential here is if that transplanted tomato plant you're talking about has all that living soil in it and the um, compost and the microbes operating, it's way better off than the typical plant you're going to get from a nursery that does it in sterile medium. That's a different animal because when you put that out in the wild, it goes into a stasis. It's kind of hangs, just hangs out for two, three weeks and doesn't do much of anything as it's reestablishing how it's going to feed in that new environment. And that's why I do it the reverse. I, I present that young seedling with the type of environmental conditions it's going to face in the wild of your garden bed, right? So then when it goes out there, it's already ready to do that. And so in that regard, it can accelerate past nursery plants. Okay. So Tom mentioned that he put in like some green sand or alfalfa. That's that slow release nitrogen kind of early in the year or early in the stages. Just because a seed, you know, it has to through evolution that says I need to provide enough nutrients within the seed to get me at least up and out of ground. Right. And then I got to figure out from there on, I'm kind of on my own of how to figure out how to get more nutrients. But that seed is going to give you enough. So don't feel like you need to fertilize anything heavily, you know, at all really, because it, that seed doesn't, that plant at that point doesn't need a whole lot mm-hmm. to get going. Like its nutrient needs are pretty low and everything you know, at least to get out to that first leaf stage is going to be provided by the seed itself, the carbohydrates that have been stored inside that seed. Right. And that's just to get to the first true leaf stage yep. and start some root growth. But beyond that, if it's still sitting an extra four weeks beyond that, a lot of people experience that seedling starting to droop or get leggy yep. or not yellow. Even grow. And it's just not growing much because it's leaves. looking for. So what they do is they take liquid nitrogen yep. and dribble it along that, that cell and they feed that plant. Yep. And what happens then is now you're saying, well, whatever that medium is doesn't have enough nutrition to get that plant to the next stage. So I'm now going to be feeding it, which is more labor, right? Yep. So now it's dependent on getting food from above from a liquid form that's not using the soil food web to create its own nutrient cycle. Right. So it's jettisoning any relationships it had with with uh, biology in the soil, which isn't the most healthy way to feed your plants. So I'd rather go the route where all the food necessary to get to that six-inch seedling is already in the block. It doesn't require your efforts until you transplant that into the garden. And my last question on soil blocks, and then we can move on to our next topic (laughs) if we wanted to. We obsess over soil soil blocks. How do I make a soil block? They make soil blockers of different sizes. You can get a one-by-one, a two-by-two, a three-by-three, et cetera. So uh, you can buy them, and what I suggest to people is you go in with some other family member who also has a garden or your block, your neighborhood, or a garden club. Just buy one for a group of people because they're pricey. I'm thinking 75 to 100 bucks, something, something in there to get, say, a 12-blocker, which is what I use. It puts out 12 blocks at once, and it's about a three-foot-long stainless steel mechanism with a 12 squares on the bottom and a spring-loaded pressure chamber and you build a mound of this soil structure right. me- medium that you mixed up in a wheelbarrow including the coir and the worm castings etc and you push down with this block maker and it 
you bring it over to a tray and release it and it puts out 12 perfectly formed blocks you know and so then you just go for as many blocks as you want to plant six weeks later you put them out in the garden it's very straightforward and six weeks that's kind of like your own determination or is that well, about for, the max well for me uh i found six weeks seedling is is plenty to get in our environment to the planting date that i'm looking for you can go eight weeks with some of these plants that are mixed in like some of these uh, 14 trays would rather go eight weeks and in those cases uh, i may delay them a little bit but what you know, what you typically do is you start them earlier, right? You start right. them two weeks yeah, yeah. earlier than yeah, the rest. Yeah, yeah. But then I would have had to set up all these lights and everything for those two trays, and then later on add the other trays. I tend to do things all at once and then delay the planting of that one that required two more weeks to get to full transplant maturity. Okay. Yeah, that's just how I do it. But um, sometimes I'll put it out there if it's healthy enough and it's not quite there yet, and I look at the 10-day weather forecast, make sure it's not scorching or yeah, too hot or whatever, right. and make sure I harden these things off for a few days beforehand, which is a key component. We've talked about that in a couple different episodes. Yep. Always harden off your seedling, especially in our environment, because they want to go uh, to a place that's similar to what they grew in during the seedling stage. And if they're comfortable at 74 on these wonderful lights mm, yeah. and they're just happy, and then you chuck them out yeah. in late May, early June, and it's like 95 scorching sun, and yeah, they're like, there's oh, a wind, and, wind yes, and they're just... They're 36 just, degrees at night, yeah. they're not going to be happy. They get hammered. They're going to be deer in headlights. Yeah, so you yeah. put them out in stages in the shade on your front porch for six hours until you see them drooping and having that reflex, bring them back inside. The next day you do eight a hours. A longer, yeah. Yeah, longer. Then you put them in the sun for a couple hours, until they start drooping bring them back in and after a few days of that you'll start to see the resilience come up in those seedlings and then they're ready for transplant i always say like that last night you're going to leave them all outside yeah like that's like all the night. night before planting yeah yeah and as long they, as the temperature is going to be above freezing then. right and if if they don't have a big response negatively that night then you'll know hey yeah, they lasted there. that night they're ready yep, they're ready to go in right but if these you wake up in the morning they're all flat on the on the soil get them back inside they're not quite ready don't just chuck them out there but it's saturday and i don't yeah i I have time today so sorry (laughs) yeah too bad tomatoes right okay so we talked a little bit about seedlings for those small portion of our audience that is actually out there with seedlings good for you that takes some extra labor and forethought to make that but it's fun i've learned that's like one of the funnest parts of gardening actually for me is starting everything and understanding how things grow at that early stages i really enjoyed it you're orchestrating from the beginning and you're planting from seed and it's really uh, a game changer for what you control in your garden. And it's really fun to do if yeah, you haven't fun. done it. Uh, we, we laugh about it and the struggles and stuff, but it's actually pretty cool. Yeah. And it, I mean, I think last year I grew, I started 96 tomatoes. I'm like what? I know not. I grow like 12, 20 or 20. You so, give them all away? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we give them away to friends or, you know, folks that have community gardens or community gardens associated with like a, you know, a, a food bank or whatever it is. So they, they all find homes. Nothing is ever going to be thrown away. But again, like you grow too many and, and that's fun. And it's so there's always that a, you can have some errors. You can screw up with this pretty easily. Um, and that's okay. I So you, Tom is always this wealth of information in terms of, of soil, which we have come to love and appreciate. But um, I'm curious, Tom, like, is there something that you've grown? You know, it's like the vegetable of the week, right? Like, what's that new plant that you got going or one that you've actually fallen in love with? Well, I have one that is up and coming. Oh, an up-and-comer. Yeah, I I have not planted it yet, but I'm going to do some trials because it's a winter squash that is resistant to vine borers. Okay, and a vine borer is an an insect that will get into the 
It's a nasty insect that ruins squash plants. Oh, so not just an insect. No, it's, it's a nasty it insect. It is a borer, and it's named a borer because it gets inside the whole stem structure, the whole branching structure of a fully established squash plant, and it'll eat it from the inside. So it kind of breaks that, what we call the, the xylem and the phloem, right? The passage of water and nutrients from roots to plant to leaves. And so that it kind of interrupts that. So it, it just breaks those, you know, quote unquote, veins and arteries. And so then obviously nothing past that point can get the water. Right. That it, it just collapses. It's really devastating to the plant. So they're so, nasty. Nasty. Yeah. And exactly. We don't have a whole lot here. No, but if you did have problems with vine borers, yeah. uh, especially for those people listening on the podcast that could be in other regions, um, there's a, a winter squash that... It's kind of a crossover. It's a summer and winter squash because it can be eaten young like a zucchini or you can let it uh, harden up and mature and keep it as a winter squash. Um, So it's very versatile in that regard, but it's resistant to the vine borer. And it's a really cool shape, which is an added bonus because it's shaped like a trombone. It's actually called the tromboncino or some people just call it the trombone squash. Like a little trombone. Yeah. 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 And what's really cool, uh, try it if you're into squash. It, you can get them from most of the seed companies. And it's shaped in a big curve with a bell on the end, sort of like a trombone would look. And if you trellis it, it gets a straighter shape. So it's a little easier to store than these big curly things that might not sit on the shelf completely. So um, it doesn't take up a lot of room. You can trellis it. And anytime you can trellis a squash, it's going to save you a lot of space. Yeah. And squash plants love to be trellised. Yeah. They're amazing architects. Yeah. And it's a great for actually for you as a gardener as well, because squash are pretty prone to some of our mildews, you know, downy mildew, powdery mildew. If you can get it up onto a trellis, it allows for greater airflow and it reduces that uh, relative humidity level within the canopy of the plant. So that's going to dry out any fungi uh, that may be kind of uh, starting to populate on the leaf material itself. So this particular squash is a cucurbita moshata, and that's the family of squash that it resides in. So you have to look at that if you're trying to not have them cross-pollinate. This would be the only one of that family that you would plant if you're trying to save the seeds. If you're not worried about the seeds saving the next year, then go ahead and plant the full spectrum of winter squash. Um, it's a very sweet uh, squash, so it's really excellent flavor, and it stores well. So it's going to be my next experiment. I, I grow a lot of different types of squash, and each year I try to kind of change the palate a little bit. And this year I'm trying the trombone. Jury's still out. We'll see how it does in this environment. But uh, if anyone's done one here and has uh, stories about the trombone squash, give us a, yeah. an email. That'd be interesting to hear. You can jazz up our email inbox with the story exactly. about the trombone squash. <laughs> <laughs> so we've gone from the vegetable of the week to maybe the word of the week. Oh, yes, the word of the week. We have to resurrect that process yeah, that we started last year. And do you know what this, this week's word is? Uh, I do because we've talked about oh, we this did already. Talk about it. Oh, so you already know the secret. We did a little bit of yeah, but you can go ahead and pronounce it's it. It's Shaleza. Shaleza. Yeah. So you know what that is? It's I, like I the want... word that like is over Batman's head, right in the comics, like Shaleza. It's like Shazam. <laughs> no, I don't know what it is. It's the little what most of us have seen unknowingly, we've seen a Shaleza if you've cracked an egg. And what that is, is the little, sometimes you see a little ropey, stringy thing on the yolk. And you think, oh, oh, there's something yeah, in Even the, the description of that is not, we've gone from vegetables to chickens. Yeah. Just as a heads up to our listeners. Heads up. We're on, we're on hen eggs now. And the chalaza is on, the, it's connected to the yolk. 
and it's sometimes you'll see that little squiggly ropey tiny thing in there that looks like something extra in the yolk or something wrong but it's yeah. actually something right if you actually see it that means that's a fresh egg okay and the purpose of that little structure is to hold the yolk in suspension in the egg to keep it from breaking and as eggs age on your shelf or on the supermarket shelf those chalazes dissipate and then when you crack the egg you don't see it anymore so if you see it it's just a good sign of a fresh egg so when you crack the egg you, you do see it but if you want to cook it you don't yeah see it, it disappears right? when you cook it but it's something that you might see in a freshly cracked egg but it it shows the freshness of the egg if the chalaza is still intact and you can actually see it okay so don't worry about it, it doesn't hurt you it's really a good sign so one of the things that we've kind of we touched on last year Hopefully it won't be an ongoing problem or concern with folks who have either backyard or commercial poultry, chicken, turkey, duck, you know, populations is uh, the HPAI, avian influenza, highly pathogenic avian influenza. Bird flu. It is super destructive, right? Like yeah. it was killed millions, millions of, of birds, chickens yeah. uh, last year. And it's still here. It's, you know, we're recognizing it still has shown its kind of uh, effects in Colorado. And those effects tend to be worse when um, birds are in their migratory stages. So birds are bringing this in uh, into Colorado as they fly over, pass over, stop over, whatever that looks like. So they do bring it in. So one of the questions that backyard flock owners may have, including Tom, is can I add more chicks to my um, backyard flock? Right. Can I add more chickens this year? Is it safe to do so? So uh, we have an expert at CSU. We have an expert in, at CSU in everything, or we, at least we pretend to be. But we do have one, Reagan Adams. She is de facto our expert on this. And so I sent this question to her. Um, and she said that recommendation is to keep a closed flock. Don't make bird additions. But there's a but. Okay. If you do, if you want to add um, a couple more, you can bring them into your home flock, but isolate them for two to three weeks from your existing flock. And just keep them under observation? Yeah, or? just and watch them. And they, if they are sick, they'll get sick pretty quickly. Okay. Um, and it's not going to be pretty. Um, but after two or three weeks, if you have them separated out and they seem to be doing okay, uh, then you can incorporate those into your existing flock. And you should be all right. But then once you have that one big flock again keep some close observation on uh -huh. it because you don't want it to spread so it sounds like chicken quarantine it is chicken quarantine <laughs> yes so yeah if you want to add to it add to them it's always too good from to buy your chicks from maybe the places that you bought before mm -hmm. somewhere that's reputable but ask them feel free to ask them those questions on mm -hmm. you know where they're getting the chicks from yeah i think any purveyor of chickens right now is well versed on where we are in that bird flu epidemic that came through and eradicated so many last year. Yeah, I mean, millions of, of birds. So yeah. we don't want that to happen again. Right. Well, in the in terms of good news, uh, we're uh, going to add a new section that will bring up unsurprised dates whenever we think that's relevant. I sure feel like today is one of those surprise dates, though. Yes, you are correct. Oh you God. are the that winner. That is good news. That's, so it's a brand new section, and it's going to be good news of the week. Good news of the week, a yeah. good story. Yeah, and so this, good. this story is about... The microbiome and soil microbes. Do you think we'll be interested? <laughs> okay, listeners. I'm going I'm to condense I'm it. You. I'm not going to go off the charts. Just, okay. just hang with me for a second. So this cool daycare, uh, there was a study in a daycare center in the University of Helsinki. 
after a month of playing in this playground environment with the forest floor planted, these students had a healthier microbiome and a stronger immune system than their counterparts at other urban daycare centers that had normal playgrounds. Uh -huh. So again, it shows us the kind of old story about farm kids seem to be stronger and more resistant to disease. And the thinking goes that there's so much more exposure right. to animals and manure and bacteria and soil and everything else in their environment that their immune systems are constantly working out and protecting that body. Well, similarly, this study shows that once these students, the, the children, could interact with the normal flora and bacterial agents that are in soil and forest floors and plants, that helped their own microbiome strengthen their immune system, which is pretty interesting. That's kind of the, you know, the old adage of you got to eat a pound of dirt before you die, right? Like, so it kind of, kind of rolls into Where that. are you from? <laughs> I'm sorry. Maybe my mom just told me to go eat dirt. First, go pound dirt. I don't remember which one I it was. pounding oh, sand is the, the okay. one you're looking okay. So maybe for. I just ate dirt. Maybe you just changed it around. And you listen. went out and were eating the sand and didn't quite understand the directions. Was that? So, okay. All right. That explains a lot, actually. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that therapy session, listeners. But, yeah. So, I would, but I would say, like, it, it kind of feels good. You know, it always feels good to get your hands in the dirt. And this story maybe kind of like reiterates it's not just getting your hands in your dirt. It's all of that stuff going inside of you. Yeah. And making your internal not sterile, just like we don't always have to make our external life so sterile. And so it ends up sometimes where in the spring you got a sore back, you got dirt under your fingernails, you're out there working, turning dirt. It's okay. It it's really all, is okay. It is okay. It feels good, right? right? Like it feels good to like have the dirt and the callus and the crack in your fingers. And it feels good that you, you keep washing your hands and that the dirt or the color of tomato plants are stained. That's right. Good. That's yes. just part of the process. You get yes. what you get. And you do not throw a fit. We'll see you next week. Thanks, guys.